Easton, Pennsylvania, population 27,000, virtually unchanged for many, many years. Over 60 churches in Easton. 60 churches in a population of 27,000. And that's not even nearly enough churches. So why you choose to come to Cornerstone when there are 59 or more other options for you, why you're here is something that not only am I very thankful for, but it's also for a reason. You're here, I believe, as an answer to prayer. This entire message is about the prayer that we've been praying in leadership that we believe you're the answer to. Cornerstone's a 33-year-old church. We're really not that old. Started in 1983 with a Bible study with a group of 18 people. Incorporated a little while later, called their first part-time pastor, Jerry. Then soon after that, called their first full-time pastor, Dean Carlson. I came on board in 1996 as a youth pastor. Worked with Pastor Dean for 10 years. I love him. He's a very good friend of mine. He left to go to Kenosha, Wisconsin. They brought me up into the senior pastor position, and the church has gone downhill since. <laughs> but that's really, there's a lot more to it, but the history of our church. We had our property up at Mark Street, up on the College Hill of Eastern Pennsylvania, given to us with the parsonage attached for $1. God has done amazing things like that in the history of this church, and I believe he's been doing that for a reason. And so while there's a lot more to our history, let me try and explain if I can, and that's the purpose of this message, that with all of the churches in this area, why we're glad you're here with us, and more importantly, or at least as importantly, what is it that we're even trying to do? What is Cornerstone about? Why does Cornerstone exist? This is one of those talks that honestly, if I possibly could, I would rather be in your living room with a fire going in your hearth and sitting down and letting you ask questions because I wanted to just bleed into you everything that we're doing as a church. Unfortunately, that medium is not possible. So I'm going to give you from Ezekiel chapter 36 what we're praying and how you're the answer to that prayer and why we exist. So let's open up our Bibles. It's page 724. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, if you've got your own Bible with you, which I trust everybody has a Bible in front of them, it's Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going to look at just two verses, mainly. And let me read those, and then we're going to talk about them for a little bit. Let me read them, and I'm going to give you a little bit of context, and then help you understand why we exist. Thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel chapter 36, we're at verse 37. This also, this is God speaking, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Let me give you a little bit of the context. If you can imagine this, this is really difficult for us to imagine, but rewind the dial of the clock of history 2,600 
600 years. It's around 585 BC. I know, long, long time ago. But you've got, you've got Israel that had had a civil war 300 years before, but a little over 200 years before. The upper kingdom, the upper Israel, Israel, the, the ten upper kingdoms, northern kingdoms, they were annihilated by Assyria. Judah was spared. The chief reason why Judah was spared at that time from the superpower Assyria is because they had kings on the throne following God faithfully. So they were spared. But then all of a sudden they had king after king that was following God unfaithfully, began to worship other gods. Now the superpower of the day is Babylon, not Assyria anymore. It's 585 BC. They come down 500 to 600 miles from up north and to the east. They come down to Judah, the lower part of Israel, and they conquer them. And what they do is they took most of the people, what they did was they took most of the people out of Judah, most of the people out of Israel, the lower part of Israel, and they carted them up, transported them into exile up into Babylon. Now, can you imagine this happening? Can you imagine a powerful group conquering America and then taking us to their country as slaves and exiles and bondage? That's exactly what happened in Israel. The southern portion. Ezekiel is a prophet. We just read from the book of Ezekiel. He's a priest and a prophet. He is taken up to Babylon. He is ministering to the, the exiles in Babylon. His contemporary, Jeremiah, the book just two before this, Jeremiah is the prophet to the people of Israel. He stays in Jerusalem. They gave him a choice, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You want to go into exile? Do you want to stay here? He said, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to minister to the remnant. So you've got Ezekiel up in Babylon, Jeremiah down in Israel, and all of a sudden you read these words, and we begin to realize God is going to do something pretty spectacular. But it's bleak. You know what they did in Babylon? They took their harps, their instruments to worship. They hung them up on poplar trees because they were, they were so depressed they were so hopeless, they could not even sing to their God. Meanwhile, their Babylonian captors are making fun of them. They're tormenting them. They're mocking them. Go ahead and sing your songs to your God. Where was your God when we conquered you? So here we've got the exile up in Babylon, and they are hopeless. They are depressed. Now listen, now we've got Jerusalem that's been reduced to rubble. The wall has been, rubble, been put into rubble. The homes have been torn down. All of the cities around there were conquered and burned. They were defeated. There were waste cities everywhere. The fields were dormant. There weren't enough people to farm them. They're overgrown. The entire area was bleak. The entire area was hopeless. Now all of that to tell you this. There's a, key, there's a few parts of this message that you've really got to key into. This is actually going to be a teaching message. All of that reduced to rubble landscape. All of that misery. All of that hopelessness. Ready? It's a picture of what sin does to a person's life. It's a picture of what sin does 
to a community. It's what sin does to a region. Sin never makes anything better. It always will reduce you to waste city status. This is the picture. It's a people that had forfeited God. It's a people that disobeyed God. They had walked away from God in defiance and in rebellion and in idolatry. And their lives were decimated. This is the power, the destructive power of sin. Now, you ready? Most people, Christians included, I don't find a lot of exceptions connect sin with doing with behavior and it's not necessarily wrong to do that it's just more that it's an insufficient connection it's not really fully helpful deeper deeper than the connecting of sin with behavior is the connection of sin with your heart with who you are with the being a sinner now let me explain that a sinner is what a person is as well as what a person does. Now listen, if you don't get this, you will be quickly reduced to legalism and moralism. Sin is not just doing things you shouldn't do or not doing the things you should have done, but that's almost majoritively where Christians connect it. Sin is what pulses that it's the engine of that kind of living it's the heart domain it's a heart that is corrupt and is in defiance and rebellion against god all things that you and i do now think of that because all of us sinned this last week so think of that for a moment everything you do that god is not pleased with comes from somewhere where it comes from is your heart and it's your heart that's in rebellion with god it's my heart that's in defiance with God. And when that heart is in defiance, and when that heart does not plead for the grace and the intervention and the power of the Spirit of God, it will then move me to do things God doesn't want me to do or not do things He does. A sinner has a corrupt heart. Which moves us to naturally seek out our own happiness, our own satisfaction, above everything else, including, listen, and most terribly, God. Sinful hearts are engaged in cosmic treason. You've got to understand that if you're really, truly going to get the power of the gospel. Listen, quit trying to stop behavior without coming to God for a new heart. It is hopelessly not going to work. You've got to have God transform. He's got to put new desires in your heart that will produce right behavior. He's got to put new desires in your heart that are going to make you hate wrong behavior. And when the motor of your life now runs according to the power of the gospel, then your feet and your hands and our mouths please him. Now Israel, all of that. Now you ready? Let's get back to Israel. Israel... In our passage in Ezekiel, all of these waste cities, you're going to see that phrase, you already did, all of these waste cities, they're a picture of the ravages and the brokenness that sin produces. Now, if you're hanging with me so far, all I've really said so far is this, sin leads to brokenness. A sinner's heart is a heart that is in defiance of God. 
And it's the heart that must change if we're going to be restored and have hope. That's basically all I've said. Now, if you're with me on that, then now we're arriving at the thread that is woven through the entire Bible. Did you know that all 66 books of the Bible are about one story? Do you understand that the gospel is that one story? It's the good news of Jesus Christ, how he has saved us. It's more than that. But did you know that that gospel story is an arc that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation? It's a beam that rifles through everything. It's the thread that holds all 66 books of the Bible together. Now listen to this. It doesn't matter where you are in the Bible. You could be in Amos, who was a sheep herder, and you could see the gospel. You could be in Revelation and watch all of human history come to a close in our triumphant Jesus Christ, the King reigning, and you're looking at the gospel. You could start out in Genesis 1-1 and see the beginning of the gospel. But what is the gospel? Let me give you four words that will tell you what the gospel is. Now listen, this is so important. You can write them on a napkin at a diner we're meeting with a friend who doesn't know about Jesus. That's how simple this is what I'm going to teach you. The ark story, the gospel story that goes from Genesis to Revelation, you sum it up in four words. You ready? It's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now let me just quickly tell you a little bit about that. God brings everything into creation. Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 2. And it's perfect. Now listen, it's perfect meaning it's without defect. Tsunamis that destroy the shoreline and the cities. Earthquakes, landslides that cover over buses of tourists. Listen, those are evidences of a creation that is defective. That never happened in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Nothing about creation was defective. There were no dying stars that blazed like a mediator, meteor over the night sky. Listen, none of that ever happened. God brought everything into creation. It was perfect. It was without defect. But now we've got Adam and we've got Eve. And by the way, you and I would have done the same thing. We've got Adam and Eve who chose to defy God, chose to disobey him. And when they did that, listen, here's what happened. They ushered in sin into the creation, every square inch of creation. When God made it, was saturated with his glory. Sin comes into the picture. And by the way, listen, you want to know this. Sin never compartmentalizes. You cannot, brother and sister, pursue a sinful lifestyle thinking that it's going to stay in just this part of your life. It goes into the warp and woof of your soul. It will saturate everything. Here comes Adam and Eve. They defy God. They usher in sin. Now listen, sin now corrupts. It creates a defect in every square inch of creation. Every bit of it. Brings about the fall. It's the fall into sin. It's the fall away from God. Brings desolation. And every human being, that would be you, that would be me, every single person born since Adam and Eve has inherited this inward corruption of the heart. It's a sin 
nature. It's a nature that you were born with, that I was born with, that is so easy, so wants to defy God and do it your way, do it my way. We're born rebels. But we're born rebels against God. But this didn't catch God by surprise. By the way, all of a sudden, after Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, God's not sitting on his throne with Jesus' son and his spirit going, now what are we going to do? This messes all of our plans up. He knew everything. He elected, he chose you, Christian brother and sister, before he created the earth. He actually made your good works, Ephesians 2.10, before he created the earth. He had this entire plan already laid out before he created the foundations of the world. So all of a sudden, we see the plan of redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. You know what that redemption is? It's God's rescue plan. Where he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. Now you need to know that phrase, in our place. It's substitution. Because sin, now listen, sin brings death. That's what God told Adam and Eve. The day you eat in it, the day you eat of the tree of the center of the garden, of the, good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the day you will die. Defying God brings death. What's the antidote? The antidote is somebody has to die in your place, or you're going to die. But whoever dies in your place has to have perfect blood. Well, there's never been a person with perfect blood. Perfect blood means sinless blood, a sinless soul, a sinless life. So the only substitute that could be a, a, an antidote, a redemptive antidote for you and for me, was one who had never died, and that is only Jesus, who was born holy. By the way, all of those animals that they sacrificed all through all those years, listen, all that did was cover over sin. It could not take away sin. It just put a covering so that you and God, they and God, could pull up at the table and have fellowship again. But the very next time they sinned, all of a sudden, it brought the death of the relationship again. There was no peace. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the spotless one, dyed his blood, has a power not to cover sin, but to take sin away. So believer, your soul is pure. You are righteous before the Lord. You are made right by Jesus, who is your substitute. That's the plan of redemption. Now here's the interesting thing. We all got the first three. Most Christians know it. Creation without defect, fall from Adam and Eve, inward corruption of all of us. God had to do something. We couldn't fix our problem. He did it by sending his son to die on the cross for us. We all got that. But the fourth part of the gospel, the missing link for too many Christians and this church is trying to recover it, is restoration. It says this in Revelation 21.5, And he who was seated on the throne, that's the Father, said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the power of that story that is arcing its way through, through the entire Bible. God is saving people. He's calling them to him, putting them in his kingdom, taking them out of the kingdom of the world, putting them into his kingdom, and he's putting them out in the fields to work. And what are they doing out in the fields working? They're beginning the work of restoration so that this creation can once again 
fully and finally when Christ comes, but begin more and more to be saturated by the glory of God. That's the mission that you're on. That's the mission that I'm on. That's the mission of Cornerstone. Our purpose, this is actually one of the main things I'm going to tell you, so you got to really key into this. Our purpose, Cornerstone's purpose for existing is not only to tell the gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Listen, this is it. This is incredibly huge. It's not only to tell the story, it's to participate in the story. There's a massive difference between a, an observer who's telling the story and somebody who is participating in the story of redemption and restoration. Every one of us was born a fallen creature. And for those here in this church who have been saved by grace, meaning your works aren't going to save you, your church attendance and how much money you give to charities, that will not save you. Your eight sacraments of a church will not save you. The only thing that can save you is something that you did not do that God did, died for you. So by grace through faith, if you have come to God through Christ believing his sacrifice is enough, he was the substitute for you, you believe it and all of a sudden God says, I am giving you life. And he takes you out of the world, puts you into the kingdom, and he gives you eternal life. For those of us who have been saved by grace through faith, you've been redeemed. Listen, you've got a job. You are serving the king of kings. And you're serving him in his kingdom. God's plan is to fill this world with worshipers from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Who will work with him to bring about the restoration that will fully and finally be experienced when Christ returns. That's our job right now. So let me show you three great truths from this passage. Ready? That was all preamble and I'm going to go quicker. So don't worry. Don't get frightened. Number one. God wants Cornerstone to grow. Now that sounds horribly egotistic this is true of all of god's kingdom which finds its its visible expression in the church now you just i i defined for you just now whether you got it or not what god's kingdom looks like it finds its visible expression in the church so as we love one another as we confess sins to one another as we encourage one another as we come together in unity and we serve the king of kings you're seeing what the kingdom of god looks like through the church so the kingdom of god finds its expression visibly in the church and sometimes we're not making it look very good but it's a growing kingdom why? Because the king of kings is the author of it. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So it's, it's a kingdom that is growing and it's going to get bigger and bigger. Yet that doesn't mean, now listen, that doesn't mean that every church is supposed to be a mega church. In fact, we moved away from that model in 2007. 
We didn't really want to be a mega church. We moved into multi-siting churches. In a multi-siting church, you grow bigger by growing smaller. Multi-siting is really, honestly, if you think about it, it's exactly what God did in Israel. There were one people, two million strong, coming out of Exodus. They're walking, they're marching, they're taking the journey. It took them 40 years to get to the promised land. And what does he do there? Well, he begins to do it along the journey. He divides them into 12 tribes, all of them around one worship center, all of them worshiping one God, one priesthood, all of them unique banners, unique standards, uniqueness to each tribe. That's why we multi-site. I think it's the best approximation of what God did in Israel. And multi-siting, smaller congregations allow you to have greater community. We don't want to be a mega church. This is a perfect-sized congregation. That we can begin to serve our king together, knowing one another, living life on life. Now go back to your text if you would. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. Remember what I just said, God wants Cornerstone to grow. It's pretty clear. God says, go ahead Israel. By the way, this is a promise to Israel. I believe it applies to us today. Not all promises to Israel do. I do think this one does. It's the kingdom of God. Go ahead and ask, God says. Ask me to increase your people like a flock. But now listen, be careful for any of you who want to be part of a really exciting, fastly growing church. Notice the particular type of worshiper that God will bring with this prayer. Look what he says. Like the flock for sacrifice. That's the flock of sheep that they brought in during the festivals that were going to be killed and their blood put against the altar. So we might maybe put an ad in the paper and invite people to come to Cornerstone and be a sacrifice. That's a great church growth strategy. Yet that's exactly really what we're praying, except not physical death, but spiritual death, where we lay on the altar and we serve our king. But there's an incredible picture of worship behind this phrase, the flock for sacrifice. Now I want you to understand this. During the annual Jewish festival called the Passover, you know how many sheep they slaughtered every year? 260,000 according to Jewish historian Josephus. 258,000 to be exact. 260,000 sheep. And they were all brought in. They were, they were led in through the north part of the wall of Jerusalem through the sheep gate, the closest gate to the temple, where they were brought into the great court called the Gentile court. They were examined by a priest to make sure they were spotless, and undefiled, without defect, and then they were purchased or they were supplied for families to be able to have a sin substitute for them. The flock had a purpose, to give their lives in service to the king of the universe. God says, go ahead, ask, ask me, and I will bring people to your church, now listen, who will serve me. This is how we've been praying for three years. I think a lot of you are being the living, visible answers to that prayer. And we've been praying this by the elders. We've asked our church to pray. I'm asking you to pray again. So I want to share with you 
what God's flock for sacrifice is doing at Cornerstone. You ready? Now listen to this. If you add up all of the volunteer hours last year, we estimate them to be 24,862, which when you add them all together equals approximately 1,036 days or 2.8 years cumulatively that people gave at Cornerstone to serve God. That's pretty amazing. On average, our church, people in our church, are giving nearly 480 hours a week to serve God here. 5,706 meals were served through our Riverside ministry. We actually keep count of this so that we can know how to supply them. Over 5,700 meals served through our ministry called Riverside. It's made up of a team of 32 people. Our Awana team has 31 people serving regularly. Our Cheston After School Bible Club, 46 people. Our Summer VBS has 63 volunteers. Our brick-making machine that we purchased through the tour, the bike tour last summer, 31 people participated in that, that bike tour from Maine down to Easton, riding their bicycles. They raised over $47,000 It purchased a brick-making machine for our ministry in Dungu, Democratic Republic of the Congo. That machine made over 15,000 bricks with 20 people from the local churches, the Sika 20 churches, 20 of their laborers, 22 of them to be exact, worked with Jim Finari, Jeff Graham, and this brick machine that the bike tour raised the money for and made these bricks that are going to be built into a training and support center in the town of Dungu. Now, if you add in 40 or so women serving in women's ministry, a facilities team of over 20 people, men and women, weekly worship services requiring 30 people, our missions team, nursing home teams, visitation teams, student ministry teams, life group team, more than I'm even going to be able to mention. Listen, this is a church serving God. The old phrase, 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. The best that we could possibly do was to estimate about 57% of our people are actively serving God here. We're seeing God answer our prayer. Pray, let me bring you people who will serve me. Flocks for sacrifice. And it's part of the restoration work of the gospel. Let me get you to point number two. The growth that God brings. Now listen to this, look at me for a minute. The growth that God brings restores life to communities now that's so important you hear that memorize that if you could the growth that god brings restores life to communities back to our text so shall the waste cities ezekiel 36 so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people when god's teachers and students worship him Listen, schools rejoice. You know that, right? We have a lot of public school teachers in our church. I had one just a few weeks ago tell me, God is telling me, and that sermon confirmed it, that I need to be starting a prayer ministry among the teachers in our church. We need to pray for our people. We need to pray for our students. 
Well, when God's teachers and students who are on the altar serving him, when they're in their schools, listen, schools rejoice. When Christian employees serve God well, companies rejoice. Where godly homeowners exalt Christ, neighborhoods rejoice. Well, you might be saying, well, Tim, how can you possibly say that? What proof do you have? Well, let me show you two exciting verses in Scripture. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overgrown, overthrown. Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. So God's saying, listen, pray, ask me to bring an increase to you so that the waste cities, the, the places of brokenness will be filled with my people, my servants who are exalting me, worshiping me, serving me. You're going to see people rejoice. And by the way, that's exactly what happened in church history. I'll give you one example, AD 260 city of Alexandria, there's a plague that's killing thousands. Dionysius, a leader in the church, wrote of the church, our brethren in their exceeding love and affection for the brotherhood were unsparing of themselves. They cleaved to one another. They visited the sick without a thought as to the danger. They were ministering to them, tending them in Christ. And so most, godly, most gladly departed this life along with the ones with the plagues. But the conduct of the heathen, the unbelievers, was the exact opposite. Even those who were in the first stages of the plague's disease were thrust away and fled from their own family. The power of a church that is serving God fills the waste cities. We're praying that God would increase his people at Cornerstone and all Christ-centered churches in our area and fill the waste cities with the righteous Cornerstone, why do we exist? Which, by the way, is what I'm answering. Cornerstone exists to bring hope and healing to sin-broken people and communities and regions. Here's our vision. Our vision statement is this. You ready? By the way, a vision is the picture that forms when you understand what God is calling you to do. It's the noun. I'm going to show you the verb in a minute. Here's the noun. Here's the picture. Here's our vision statement rebuilding a spiritual wall around the east end of the Lehigh Valley. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, walls separate, walls divide. Walls aren't very good until you understand that walls in Scripture were symbolic of God's salvation, praise, and presence. In fact, I'll show it to you from Isaiah 60. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Zechariah 2.5, which is not on the screens, but it says this, I will be to Jerusalem a wall of fire all around here, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So when we're rebuilding this wall around the east end of the Lehigh Valley, what we really mean by that is that we want to see God's people fill this region, fill these communities, these waste cities, with glad, exalting, adoring people of God, and they will then begin to bring the presence of God into this region. The wall is symbolic of God's presence and the salvation that he brings. This is why we're multi-siding. Do you know what a church is? Have you ever looked at it this way? Picture a wall and picture a watchtower. A church is a watchtower in the community. 
That's how it ought to be. We want to see campuses come around this wall while we partner with Christ-centered churches so that we can build watchtowers to protect people, to bring God's plan and the gospel of creation, fall, redemption, restoration to people who have been ravaged and broken by sin. That's why we're multi-siting. So we envision campuses of worshiping people all around the east end of the Lehigh Valley. But how do you make that happen? How do you make the noun a reality? We've got to get the verb. The verb is the mission. And our mission statement is this. We want to build strong believers of Jesus Christ through his word as we follow him into, this, into his community. We want the word of God transforming the people of God and get on mission. Don't, don't wait for the, church, the world to come to church. The church has got to get to the world. You do that at your places of employment, your schools, you do that where you play, you do that in your neighborhoods. And by the way, there's really only one mission that a church or a Christian ever has. It's called the Great Commission. Here's what Jesus said. And Jesus came, said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. There, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the universal mission statement. Ours is just a rewording of that. We exist, Cornerstone does. You ready? And then we're going to quickly move to point three and we'll be done. We exist to worship and serve God by participating in the restoration work of the gospel in our workplaces, our cities, our schools, and our neighborhoods. Now listen, and as God increases his serving people among us, among the waste cities all around us that are ravaged by sin, he's filling us, he's filling these waste cities with something ultimate, incredible, something truly amazing. And that is his glory. Look at the third point. God hungers for his glory. God should be made known. That's why we exist, that God would be made known. Can we see that back in Ezekiel 36? Look at verse 38. Then they will know that I am the Lord. We're not working for our reputation. Everything I've told you tonight, everything I've told you today, it's not for our reputation. This is for God's reputation because he's doing it all. I'm going to be really candid with you. And I'm not, I'm not telling you this to be falsely humble. I didn't go to seminary. I went and got my health education degree and then a master's in counseling. But God called me into pulpit ministry without the direct training. So I get pastors in here that teach me a lot. But how can he use me to lead this church? Well, listen, it's not about Tim Ackley. It's not about Matthew Millen, Tim Van Summeren. Not about Austin Greco. It's not about any of our elders or deacons. It's about what God is doing in our midst. He gets all of the glory. It's why we've got to so carefully guard our unity. It's why we've got to make sure that our teaching is pure and it's right. It's why we've got to make sure we love one another it has every impact on how unbelievers perceive God. Did you hear that? 
how we love, how we are unified, how we teach, how we go into our communities impacts how they see and perceive God. So when God's worshipers increase in cities and schools and, listen, workplaces and neighborhoods and wrestling teams and dormitories and Zumba groups, when they're filled with those who love him and serve him, God is made famous. Why do we exist? We exist to make God known and to make him famous. Here is the key. It's why we exist. God is increasing his kingdom. He's filling sin-ravaged and broken places with his people who will serve him by participating in the gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And as we serve him, we're caught up with an increasing love and an adoration for him. Not so that we get noticed, but so that God gets noticed. And it all begins with praying. Look at verse 37 again. This too I will let Israel do. Ask. That means to pray. That means to come to God and say, God, would you send us more workers? Would you send us more people who are ready to, to serve you and worship you? And whether they are coming here because we're declaring the gospel and they're getting saved, or whether they're coming here, moving in here from other regions of the world, listen, bring them here, let us serve together that you might be made known. So we're asking you to pray. We're asking you to serve. It ought to be 100% of the church serving. It should be 100% of the people of God on the wall. And so let me end with the worst, most terrible picture, quite honestly, that some of you show. There's a terrible indictment in the book of Nehemiah. When they were rebuilding Jerusalem's walls, you get this incredible output of energy by God's people and then all of a sudden you get to chapter 3 verse 5 and you read the worst part of that entire chapter and next to them the Tekoites repaired but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord we like any church have people that will not stoop to serve the Lord and yet they call themselves Christians that's not any kind of a Christian that I'm understanding. That honestly, lovingly, ought to make you ashamed. There should never be a Christian that is not serving their king. If you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, you must serve the king. Not just in Cornerstone, but more importantly, honestly, at your jobs, in your schools on your teams, in your dorms, in your neighbors' homes. Every Christian should stoop to serve the Lord. We're asking you to pray. And pray and ask God to increase his people here like a flock for a sacrifice and to consider whether you're part of that. Whether you're part of that flock. Participating in the story of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration so that God is made known by filling the waste cities with his people. Amen.
me pray.